If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So this morning, uh, we are going to continue uh, in the passage that we've been studying and we're continuing to talk about tongues, but I don't want you to go, oh my goodness, I'm tired of hearing about tongues. There are some principles that Paul is going to teach and share that apply not only to the exercising of spiritual gifts and to the issue of tongues in the church, but really the principles that he is laying down and sharing with the Corinthians apply to a lot of different areas of our lives. So be mindful of that as we walk through, and I'm going to kind of walk you through of how these things apply and where they apply in your life. Not ex extensively, but just enough for you to have an understanding. Um, so if you're keeping notes, uh, the title of the lesson this morning is Paul Continues His Instruction on Tongues. Paul Continues His Instruction on Tongues. So in 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 13, it reads, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirits only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at, the giving, at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words with a tongue. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you desire to strengthen us in our walk. You desire to grow us in our knowledge of yourself. You desire to sanctify us, purify us. Father, you desire above all else to bring us to a saving knowledge of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You loved us that much that you were willing to give your son. And I pray as we walk through this passage that you would teach us, that you would train us, that you transform our minds, our way of thinking, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, so that we are more in line with being obedient to you and being aligned with your word. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tongues in scripture is actually only mentioned in three books in the Bible, just three books. It was mentioned uh, once in the book of Mark in chapter 16, verse 17, three times in the book of Acts, chapters 2, 10, and 19, and then in 1 Corinthians. Those are the only times tongues is even mentioned in scripture. But Paul felt it was necessary to in this letter that he was writing to correct and to restrict the use of tongues. It had gotten out of hand. There were guidelines that were given in scripture for the use of tongues. And we've heard these things in the last few weeks, but I just want to go through them very quickly. 
um, the guidelines that were given in Scripture for the use of tongues, when the tongues were to be used, uh, was this. Tongues is a sign to unbelievers. That's the point of tongues. It's a sign to unbelievers. It's a sign that God is speaking. It was an affirmation of the truth of the person that was bearing witness of Jesus Christ. So that was the first thing. Second, if used in the church, it must always be translated. Always, not without question. So that it can have the purpose of edifying the believers um, who don't know, who didn't know what was being said. That was the purpose of tongues. Um, number three, never are more than three people to do it. In a service, never more than three people. Um, and they are to do it in sequence, not at the same time. That was the, these are the guidelines that were laid out in Scripture for the use of tongues. There is to be no speaking in tongues unless it is interpreted. It's not to be done unless there's somebody interpreting. Any confusion or any disorder in the assembly is an indication that what is going on did not originate with God. It was a counterfeit. So when you see in the charismatic church today, the use of tongues, it clearly does not line up with the guidelines that were given in scripture for the use of tongues in the few times that it was talked about in scripture. Did God forget to tell us that, oh, no, 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 no. oh, by the way, in the 2000s, this stuff is coming back and, and, and it's going to be awesome. No, he didn't say that. He gave clear instruction on how it was to be done. Did God make a mistake in not giving enough clarification? Did God make a mistake in not giving enough guidelines or enough information about it? No, he did not. God did not make a mistake. God clearly stated what his purpose and his plan was for the use of tongues to validate the message of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ and those that were bearing witness of it. That was it. That was the purpose, and there were certain guidelines that he gave on how it was to be done. The last thing was women were never to do it. They are to remain silent and not to speak in tongues. That's what Scripture says. So those are the six things in Scripture that were very clear on the use and execution of this spiritual gift within the church. And then as he comes to the end of chapter 14, and we're not going to cover this verse today, it's coming. Paul tells them in verse 37, in fact, if you want to turn to verse 37 in chapter 14. And he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. <coughs> this wasn't hey, let me give you my opinion. Hey, let me share uh, some random thoughts. This was God's commandment, Paul says. That's what Paul said about it. Um, it was an absolute imperative. There was no option. It was not an opinion. This was the facts that he was sharing. So the historical setting that we're in in Corinth uh, tongues in, Cor in the Corinth church was chaotic, out of order, confused, way out of place. 
they had gotten way out of place. The attitude of the people uh, in using this gift was one of pride and self-centeredness. They were the, look at me, look what I can do. Pay attention to me, look how amazingly spiritual I am. That was their attitude. They were putting on a show, they were parading their spirit, supposed spirituality. They weren't using their gifts for the benefit of others. Remember, when we go back and start talking about the use of gifts in the church, it was for the benefit of the body. Remember? That's why we do this. We're all part of one body. We're here to serve the body. That's the purpose of the gifts, not self-edification. He writes... Uh, in chapter 13 about love as a standard by which the gifts are to be exercised. Um, chapter 13, verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. In other words, if my attitude about the exercising and the using of my gift is not that of love, of genuine love, which is making a choice, love is a choice, that we make to do and to exercise, and I'm gonna choose to love, show deference, show preference to someone else. That's what he was encouraging those in the church to do for one another, and they were not doing it. So there were six things that Paul walked through in this passage, and he shared with the Corinthians. Number one, no interpreter no tongue. And these are short, quick, easy points. Um, so we're going to be able to walk through these fairly quick, quickly. Number one, no interpreter, no tongue. Verse 13 says, therefore, let no one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. When tongues are spoken in a church, someone must interpret. That's what he's sharing. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a language, it should be by two or three uh, two or at most three and in each in sequence and let someone interpret. And if there isn't an interpreter, then stay silent and just pray to God. Why? Why does he say this? Why does he share this? Because it would be selfish and self-centered and have no edification of the church to speak in tongues without an interpreter. What is the point of the exercising of spiritual gifts? It is for the edification of the body, right? That's the point of, tongue, uh, of spiritual gifts. And so if you are exercising this gift of spiritual tongue, uh, of tongues and there's no interpreter, how is it edifying the body? It's not. It has no point. It has no use. It says, because if I'm going to be an instrument of God by which he reveals his presence and I say something that nobody understands... And nobody translated, and nobody knows whether it was real or legitimate. Nobody knows what the message from God was. What's the point? How is that edifying the body? How is that serving the body? How is that being a part of the body? It would be kind of like if I were to invite Justin over, over to my house for a very fine dinner. Fine dinner. And we would serve expensive caviar, and we would serve foie gras, and we would serve, get 
uh, truffles from Italy and shaved them over a top of a medley of grilled vegetables. That would be a waste of time. That in no way, shape, or form would edify Justin, would it? Everybody in this room knows that. It would not. All it would be, do, I would be doing was be saying, look at how amazing a dinner party I can throw. Or in my case, actually, look at how amazing my wi- uh, dinner party my wife can throw. That, that's all I would be doing. It does not edify Justin. If I want to edify Justin, I have pepperoni pizza and chicken nuggets. I basically throw a first grade birthday party. I am edifying him so much. The exercising and the use of tongues without interpretation, without somebody interpreting, was wasted. It was pointless. It was not appreciated. It was not needed. So, point number one that he shares is no interpreter, no tongue. Point number two, the mind is critically important. The mind is critically important. Verse 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The pagan worship that was surrounding them in Corinth was full of this use of the spiritual tongue. They would speak this gibberish in their pagan worship services to their gods. Generally speaking, they incorporated drinking, alcohol, and all kinds of uh, sexual immorality and different things like that that were incorporated into these pagan worships. And then they would use these gibberish talk like they were talking to their God. It was typical. The experience was intended to bypass the mind and normal understanding. He was saying, if I pray in a self-manufactured tongue, my breath prays, but my mind is unfruitful. MacArthur's commentary states this. The Holy Spirit could not be praying through a person while bypassing the mind. And let me just stop right there. God is the author of reason, of logic, of order, of wisdom, and of truth. God is the author of those things. So is God going to do away with all of those things to speak to you? No, that he will not do that because he is the author of reason and logic and wisdom and truth. That's who he is. And that's how he's, so he's not going to bypass those things to speak to you. And he certainly wasn't saying that the mind of the Holy Spirit can sometimes be unfruitful. The Holy Spirit is always going to be fruitful. Everything that God does, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is perfect and right and accurate, period. So 
God is not going to separate those two things. He goes on to say that the apostle has to be speaking entirely of himself and that hypothetically. If I, though an apostle, were to speak the gibberish that many of you speak, he's just paraphrasing what Paul was saying, my mind would have no part in it. I would only be making wind-blowing air. What I would say would be empty and mindless and gibberish uh, as the gibberish used to witness, uh, that you used to witness in pagan temples. That's what he's sharing about this. Verse 15 goes on to say in chapter 14, what is the outcome then? What is the outcome of this? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. When he says, what is the outcome then? The answer is that there is no place for mindless, ecstatic prayer. Praying and singing with the Spirit must be accompanied by praying and singing with the mind. It is obvious that edification cannot exist apart from the mind. Spiritual, uh, spirituality involves more than the mind, but it never excludes the mind. Does that make sense to you? When we go and worship, whether it be you are worshiping right now, listening to the teaching of God's word, you are worshiping whenever Edwin and the music team gets up here and sings and leads in worship, that's worship. You are worshiping when you pray. You are worshiping God whenever you serve the church, when you exercise your gifts for the benefit of the body. You are doing that. That is how you are uh, exercising those things. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Your mind has got to be actively engaged and involved in the worship that you do. And whenever tongues is used improperly, the mind is excluded. That is not how God works. He was crystal clear, period. Scripture, uh, Ephesians 4.23 says that you be renewed by the spirit of your mind. The activ activation and engagement of your mind in worship is critically important. Scripture places no premium on ignorance. It places no premium on ignorance. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, Jesus quoted this. Jesus reinforced the Old Testament command that we should love the Lord our God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Our minds are to be engaged. It is critically important that your mind is engaged in worship, in study, 
in discernment, in testing what you are taught, in controlling what and how you think. So, I want to stop down here for just a second and share a little bit about this. In our society today, a lot of people engage in activities and pursue things without engaging their minds. They begin to think certain ways because that's the way the, the herd thinks, the majority thinks. They, they take away the engagement of their mind. Um, it is very important in every area from the way you think politically, the way you think morally, the way you think theologically, doctrinally, the way you think emotionally, the way you think in your family, at school, at church. It is important that your mind is engaged. And you say, what do you mean? Let me give you an example. By show of hands, who in here has ever worried before? We all have. Every single one of us has worried about something before, right? Okay. This was an exercise that we would go through with our daughter Faith. Now, let me just say this. Mandy has had to go through this exercise with me. I have had to go through this exercise with Mandy. This is something that is important for every single one of us. If you are worrying about, let's say, a test, who here has ever taken a test and worried about it? Everybody in here, right? Absolutely. So if you're worrying about a test, okay, let's stop down and break down how that works. You begin worrying about it, and you get all weird feeling down in your stomach, right? You're like, oh, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pass or not. I don't know how I did. And you start getting all nervous and worried. Or the test is coming, and you don't feel prepared. Oh, that's horrible. Guess what? That's never going to stop because you have different forms of tests that come throughout your whole life. It's called work and marriage and life in general. You got them coming. You got to be prepared for them. So what do you do? When you, what happens is your mind begins to run rampant. Oh, no, what happens if I, gonna, if I pass this test? What if I don't pass this test? What if I get a D instead of a C and I always get... Bees and oh, ah, and you just start worrying and you start fretting and you start getting all nervous and you it just locks you down, right? It can do that, doesn't always, but it locks you down. How do you deal with that? You deal with it by engaging your mind. You go, What do you mean? Let me share with you. If you start worrying about something, the very first thing you've got to do is catch yourself and stop allowing yourself to get on that slippery slope of worry that just takes you down to where it just locks you down. And it can happen to all of us. Acknowledge it, and the first thing you do is say, God, your word says that I'm not to worry. I confess I am in sin right now. I'm worrying. I need your help. I need your comfort. I need your peace. You pray about it. You confess, hey, I don't need to be worrying about this. But here's what you do. You engage your mind. 
First question, what is the truth? What is the truth? Let's start walking through what the truth is. The truth is my God is sovereignly and providentially in control of all things. My God has given me a mind and an ability to learn. He has given me an ability to read and study, and he's given me an ability to comp uh, of comprehension, some people to different levels than others, and that's okay. God has put me in this situation. He knows exactly what I'm going through. James 1 says that he allows challenging things, these trials, for the purpose of conforming me to the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to growing me in my faith. So, Lord, thank you for allowing something in my life that can grow my faith in you. Start speaking the truth about the situation from Scripture to yourself because it stops your mind from allowing it to just slide down that slippery slope. And you know what? Satan loves to get you on that slippery slope. He wants you to live on that slippery slope because that's where he's in control of causing you to worry, to be in sin. And then ask yourself, what is the lie that Satan wants me to believe about this situation? I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. You know what? God gave you your mind. What are the lies that he's trying to share? And then lastly, the last thing to think about is what can I control? God has given me a mind. He's given me wisdom. He's given me through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He shares wisdom, discernment. He's given me abilities. What can I control? Well, I can control how much time I, get, I sleep, how much time I study, how I prepare, how I focus. There's certain things that I can control. I need to control the things that God, I can control. Did I spend too much time on the Xbox and not enough time studying? Well, yeah, maybe you ought to worry because you didn't, you didn't control what you can control. You know what? I'm going to change that. I'm going to make a modification to what's going on. I could set up some accountability. I could get friends to encourage me, set up some parameters. What can you control? So the thing is, is you've got to engage your mind when you begin to worry. You've got to engage your mind when you listen to somebody preaching. The Bereans did that, and they were praised for it because they tested what they heard against the truth of God's word. Is this true? Gratefully, we are in the greatest situation because when our pastor, Tom, teaches, he says he opens God's word and he walks us through and says, this is what God's word says in context. This is what it's saying. Here's affirmation of this truth from other passages of scripture. I mean, he clearly does that. When you listen to some pastors, they don't even open God's word or they'll say, hey, here's one verse. And then, <clears throat> and then they close it. And they just share what they think and what they, they spiritualize a passage. They'll take it out of context. They do all this. So you've got to have your mind engaged just because somebody's up preaching doesn't mean that that's the truth. The way you think morally, your mind needs to be engaged. The way you think theologically, your mind needs to be engaged. The way you think politically, your mind needs to be engaged. The way you think about service in the church, your mind needs to be engaged. How, how is this edifying? How can I edify those around me?
Don't go to Central Market and buy caviar for Justin to edify him. That doesn't work. That wouldn't be smart. You would not be engaging your mind. Get him a Pizza Hut pizza, you're a winner. You've got to engage your mind. So that's what Paul is encouraging them to do when it comes to the use of tongues. So number three, what are you agreeing with? What are you agreeing with? Verse 16 says, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at the giving of your thanks? Since he does not know what you are saying. Amen is a Hebrew word of agreement and encouragement, meaning so let it be. So I grew up in Southern Baptist churches and the preaching in Southern Baptist churches was sometimes a little bit more emphatic. Let's just put it that way. Um, they would be more along the lines of, do you hear what I'm saying? You know, and I mean, you get guys that out there just like real impassioned. And you'd get people that would be like, amen, brother. And we'd get that in churches. Um, I almost feel bad for H.B. Charles when he comes. Because when he comes, it's like stone cold quiet service. And you can tell he's used to affirmation from the body. And it's almost like when he says something, and, and he says in a powerful statement, everybody just says like, instead of, amen, brother, so let it be, praise Jesus, yes, they would give an affirmation of the message being taught. And what he's saying is, how is it that somebody can say, so let it be, amen, preach it, brother, when I have no idea what that guy just said because he's speaking in some kind of gibberish tongue. And there's no one to interpret it. Praying or singing in tongues could serve no purpose without an interpreter. That word ungifted is best translated as ignorant, unlearned, or unskilled. A person who is ignorant of a language being spoken cannot possibly understand what he hears. In a worship service, for example, he could not know what they were saying, know when to say amen, or what to say amen to, or can I even engage my mind to say, let me test what was just said so that I can affirm, is that true? And lined up with scripture. Prayers or songs of thanks could not include anyone else if they were given in, in an un, unintelligible sound. So he's saying, what are you agreeing with? That was number three. Ver, uh, number four is the body is not edified. The body is not edified. Verse 17 says, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. The person speaking in a tongue may feel that he is giving thanks well enough. Hey, I'm giving thanks to God. I'm praising God. I'm doing what I need to do. But no one else will know what is being said. The other person is not being edified as they should be when the gift is ministered properly. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 
verse 1. Turn there really, really quick. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, in other words, if I have the most eloquent tongue speaking that you have ever heard in your life, it's the most amazing, but do not have love, a focus on edifying the body of Christ. If I have not edifying the body of Christ, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It is pointless. It is worthless. And in fact, it's the opposite of edifying. It's horrible. I heard a comedian say one time, I think about, when I, when I think about a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, I think about a marching band. And I heard a comedian say one time, he says, Marching bands are amazing. They are, tr seriously, it's truly amazing. A marching band can take any song, I mean any song, and ruin it. <laughs> I think about somebody in a marching band or in a band that has the cymbals that do this, you know, like the Energizer Bunny, and if they are off beat, if they are out of sync, if they are away from everybody else and doing their own thing, that would be the most annoying sound and disconcerting in any type of a band. If somebody's like, ching, 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 ching. That's what the exercising of tongues out of place or really the exercising of any of our gifts without love, without the purpose of edification of the church, with a self-centered focus is like. It's worthless. Number five, Paul was the authority. Paul was the authority. Verse 18 says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul recognized the true gift of tongues. He wasn't denying it. He recognized it. He made it clear that he was not condemning the true use of tongues. He was not enviously criticizing a gift he himself did not possess. Paul had more experience than any of the Corinthians in speaking in tongues, though we have no record of its specific instance. We don't have record of that, but he states, I, I've got more experience than all you guys doing this. He knew what the proper use of the true gift involved and did not involve. We can be sure that he did not use the gift in any perverted way for personal gratification. He did not do that. He may have used it uh, as it was used at Pentecost to bring supernatural message to those God wanted to reach and as a miraculous sign verifying the gospel and his uh, apostolic authority. Yet he, could, yet he considered that gift so low in value as compared to his other gifts and ministries that in none of his other writings does he mention a specific use of it by himself or by any other believer. It was so low on the list. Paul was the authority. He was stating this is the truth. 
Number six, last point. Paul clarifies the goal. Paul clarifies the goal. Verse 19 says, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct all others also rather than 10,000 words in tongue. To instruct and to teach others, this is a general principle that summarizes what he has been saying, that is that teaching others is the important matter and that requires understanding. To teach others, you have to be teaching in a way that is under, they can understand it. You have to. If you walk into a first grade class and open a physics book, they're going to be lost, right? They're not going to have any idea. Heck, you could walk into my office and I'd be lost if you wanted to start teaching me physics. But I'm just saying they would be lost. They wouldn't understand. That's not how you minister and teach and train a first grader, right? The exercising of the tongues out of place would be pointless and useless in teaching and in edifying the body. The gift of languages had a proper place for a prescribed time as a miraculous confirming sign to unbelievers with an accompanying purpose of edification through interpretation. Five understandable words are far more desirable than a limitless number of words in a tongue that was incomprehensible to them. That's what he was saying. Paul apparently knew that the gift of tongues would cease in a few years. It would not continue. It was not going to be needed because the canon of Scripture, as Justin taught on Wednesday, would be complete. We would have the canon of Scripture. We would have what God wanted to, to know. And you know what? If God wanted us to know more than this, he would have given it to us. God didn't forget to share something with us. He didn't accidentally leave something out because he's perfect. That's not what God would do. He has given us the complete canon of Scripture. He was not giving instructions for governing the use of tongues in the church today. He was not even giving such instructions to the Corinthians because he was speaking of counterfeit tongues which were based in self-centered emotionalism and did not originate with the Holy Spirit. Paul was clarifying the goal. The goal was the edification of the church. He was giving them, as well as Christians today, uh, warning against using self-serving, worldly, carnal, ineffective, and God-dishonoring substitutes for the true spiritual gifts God had ordained to be ministered in the power and in the fruit of the Spirit and for the blessing and edification of his church. I got that from MacArthur's commentary. So, what is the application? It's very simple. When it comes to the exercising of spiritual gifts, when it comes to anything that we do in the body, in our homes, we are to engage our minds. 
engage your minds. Be like the Bereans. Very quickly, turn over to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Second Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, read like this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powered for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to engage our minds and take every thought captive, whether it be listening to someone teach and preach God's word, engage your mind and take every thought captive. Whether you are worrying about something or dealing with something, uh, feeling depressed, being challenged with something in your mind, engage your mind. What is the truth? How does God view this situation? What does God's word say about this situation? How is Satan trying to trip me up? What is the lie that he's trying to teach me or to tell me that he's trying to get me to believe? And then how do I engage in what I can control to pursue the truth. How can I do that? So in number one is engage your mind. Number two, application point, exercise your gift in love for the edification of the church. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then God has gifted you to be a part of the body of Christ. And you are to function within that body in an act of service, exercising your gifts. And you go, well, I don't know what my gift is. It's okay. Go to work. Be engaged. Be edifying to those around you. And you'll do it in the way that your gift empowers you to do it. But be edifying and do it in love to those that are around you. Strive to not let the same sin that Paul warned the Corinthians about of using self-serving, worldly, carnal, ineffective, and God-dishonoring substitutes for the true spiritual gifts God has ordained to be ministered in the power and in the fruit of the Spirit and for the blessing and edification of His church. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you, Father, that your word is timeless, that it is true, that it is uh, teaching us and training us and guiding us and directing us and transforming our thoughts and our minds even today. Father, I pray that as we hear this lesson and we study the truth of your word, that it would transform us that, Father, we would begin to have a mindset of being uh, in service and using our gifts for the edification of the body, not for our own selves, for our own purpose, for our own edification, but that, Father, we would do it for the body of Christ. Father, and I do pray 
that you would just prompt us and remind us through your Holy Spirit to engage our minds every single day. Father, if those that are here are challenged with worry or depression or fearful or anything, I pray, Father, that you would just prompt them to ask the question, what is the truth? And what is the lie that Satan is trying to get me to believe? And what can I do to make a change to move me in alignment with the truth of your word? What can I control? Father, you desire good for us. You desire joy for us. You desire peace for us. Satan desires the opposite. I pray that you would help us to pursue those things by pursuing the truth of your word. Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.